This morning, uh, we are, uh, have, we've been moving through the Gospel of Mark for all year. And uh, this morning, we're moving into chapter 13. And so the reason, uh, so uh, in, in Mark chapter 13 is the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse, what does that mean? Olivet is the Mount of Olives. And so in Hebrew, it's Olivet. So they call it the Olivet Discourse because this is a, a, a message that was given on the Mount of Olives. A discourse means to speak authoritatively about something. And so when the Sadducees confronted Jesus about marriage in the afterlife, he corrected them and he explained to them the truth in the afterlife from an authoritative perspective. When he would teach, when he would preach, when the Sermon on the Mount, wherever, whenever Jesus spoke, he spoke from the position of authority. And so this is an, a, an authoritative message that Jesus preached on the Mount of Olives. Now, uh, that's why it makes perfect sense for us to turn to Matthew chapter 23 if we're going to study Mark 13. After leaving Jerusalem, uh, Jesus is going to sit down on the Mount of Olives with four of his disciples. It's Peter and Andrew and James and John. And these four fellows are going to sit down with Jesus while he teaches this message. And they're sitting on the side of the Mount of Olives overlooking the city, and especially the temple. Now, all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, follow the same format where uh, Jesus is answering questions that the religious leaders are, are asking him, and they're trying to trap him with their questions. And then after that, Jesus makes an assessment of the spiritual condition of the religious leadership. And then right after that, he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and his return. Of course, if he's going to return, that means he has to leave. Now, last week we studied this assessment of the religious leadership. And we have to remember that even though we are beating up on the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, even though we're beating up on these people, and we have to remember that Jesus gave multiple warnings throughout the gospel for us not to follow in the same temptations and mistakes that they've made. So we're all vulnerable to the same things they do. And we also have to remember that when he's talking to the religious leadership, he is mad at them. He's aggravated at them. But the fact is that the nation follows their leaders. And so the leaders are are making the same mistakes that the people are making. But God is holding the leadership more accountable and they're going to receive a more severe punishment, which we read yesterday, last Sunday, because they're leading. And so when he is addressing the leadership, he is addressing them specifically, but it's also pointing fingers straight at the nation itself. Now, last week, as I said, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the assessment that Jesus made of the religious leadership. And when he did this, <clears throat> we saw that in Mark, Mark devoted three verses to this assessment. Luke devoted two verses. But Matthew devoted the entire 23rd chapter to this assessment that Jesus made. Uh, the reason we have turned to Matthew chapter 23 is because the way Mark, uh, Matthew ends 
this assessment, the way chapter 23 ends, creates the transition into the Olivet Discourse. Um, uh, at the very end of this assessment that in, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus equates what the religious leadership is doing with all of the people, all of their ancestors who have killed the Old Testament prophets. And when Jesus does this, he goes all the way back to the beginning, to Cain and Abel. He goes all the way back to Abel. So from the very beginning up until now, you guys are following in the footsteps of your ancestors. And we have to remember that while this is occurring, while Jesus is addressing them, answering their questions, while Jesus is making this assessment of them, the whole time they are looking for some kind of way to kill him. So they are absolutely doing the exact same thing. So let's begin reading in chapter 23, beginning with verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of the prophets' blood. You therefore testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's sins. Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I am sending you prophets, sages, or wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on earth will be charged to you, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I assure you, all these things will come on this generation." So here we see that Jesus has pronounced certain judgment upon the religious leadership. He says, all these things will come on this generation. They are absolutely following in the footsteps of those who have murdered God's prophets. He says, you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. So they absolutely are doing the exact same thing that their ancestors did that they're saying that they would never do. Think of it. They're sitting there wishing that they could kill Jesus, trying to figure out a way to kill Him, trying to figure out some way to trap Him, and all the time telling themselves, but well, if we'd have been alive back then, we'd have never done what they did. And Jesus is saying, you are following in their footsteps. You are truly the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Now there in verse 35, we see that Jesus takes all of the bloodshed. He collects all of the bloodshed from all of His prophets from A to Z, from the first to the last, from the first book of the Bible to the last. He goes from Genesis with Abel all the way to Zechariah. Now, um, in, the, in the English Bible, the last verse book of the Old Testament is Malachi. But in the Hebrew Bible, they did the books differently. They arranged them differently. First and Second Samuel was one book. First and Second Kings is one book. First and Second Chronicles was one book. There was one book for all twelve of the minor prophets. And so, in the Hebrew Bible, it would begin with Genesis, but it would end with Chronicles. And so, this is why Jesus is talking to about Zechariah, not the minor prophet Zechariah, but Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. 
And so he is saying from the beginning to the end, from the very beginning of the Old Testament to the very end of the Old Testament, all of that bloodshed. From A to Z, from the beginning to the end. And when Jesus did that, by the way, incidentally, what he was doing was confirming the Old Testament canon. You'll watch the Discovery Channel or you'll see in the tabloids or you'll see something about the lost books of the Bible and you'll hear about the Apocrypha and these kind of things. Well, the canon just means a measuring rod. It's a ruler. And the Jewish people would take a writing and they would measure it in a fashion and there were certain tests and criteria to try to determine if it was something that was actually inspired by God. The same happened with the New Testament. And... Uh, the end result is that a certain collection of books were recognized by the Jewish people that God had inspired them through the Holy Spirit as he wrote these books through, the, through men. Uh, Moses wrote the first five, for example. Well, Jesus is here saying, good job. You have got it right. Those are the books. That is the Old Testament. Jesus has put the, the bookends at the very beginning, at the very end of the Old Testament, confirming the Old Testament canon. Pretty exciting. We'll also notice here in verse 34 that Jesus is speaking as God. He is speaking as God first person. He says, this is why I am sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. All the righteous blood shed on earth will be charged to you from Abel to Zechariah, from Genesis to Chronicles. And most importantly, Jesus has pronounced judgment on them, and it is certain, it is an absolute certainty that this judgment is coming. But these fellows have not died yet. And the people that are alive in the nation, they haven't died yet either. And so there's still an opportunity for repentance. Now collectively we can see that the majority of these folks are going to fall into judgment. The majority of the nation is going to fall into judgment. But there is still an opportunity because you're still breathing. You're still alive. Once you have quit breathing, it's over. There's no more chances. The opportunity comes to a close. But until then, there's still an opportunity to repent. And so he's telling them that their ultimate destiny is hell. How can you escape being condemned to hell? Look at what you're doing. Think about what you are doing. Reconsider your steps. How can I possibly not condemn you to hell for what you're doing? And this is why Jesus formed it in a question. How can you escape being condemned to hell? Well, after Jesus made this pronouncement upon the religious leadership, He moved to Jerusalem. And we must remember that it's not just the city, it's not just the temple, but it's the nation. So we'll read the beginning of verse 37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the end of this analysis that Matthew uh, in, introduces in chapter 23, 
that Jesus makes. By the end of this assessment, this evaluation that he makes about the religious leadership, Jesus has informed them that unless you repent, your eternal destiny is in hell. So goes the religious leadership, so goes the nation. So this judgment applies to them. It applies to the nation, it applies to the nation too. When Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate, he's referencing the temple. It's the apex of Israel. It's the very heart. Now, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that he is going to be handed over to these men and they're going to kill him. But here he says that uh, he's going to come back. And here he says that as Messiah, I will return after you as a nation return to me. Is God done with Israel? Absolutely not. Has Israel stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. Here we have the word until. Look at it there. In verse 39, he says, For I tell you, you will never see me again until when you return to me, I will return. Now, this message that uh, I should have had that slide up there for you, but I didn't. So, you got Matthew right now? Okay, you guys messed that up, didn't you? So, uh, when Jesus makes this pronouncement, and Matthew includes it. You know, when you're reading the, when you're reading the Gospel of Mark and you, you read through this conversation he has, uh, then he, he tells the, the story about the widow, and then all of a sudden we're just right into the, the Olivet Discourse. This is why we have looked at Matthew chapter 23, because it sets the stage for the Olivet Discourse. It, it explains why this has happened. You see, as, as Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple that day, they're marveling at the temple, they're looking at how beautiful it is. The giant white stones, it's so pretty, pretty. it's ornate with gold. It must have just been one of the ancient wonders of the world, an architectural wonder. And they were just looking at it, but Jesus said, that temple is not going to last. That temple's days are numbered. And so as these disciples are following Jesus and they walk out of the city and they pass through the Kidron Valley and they begin to climb the Mount of Olives because they're going to go through Bethpage and back to Bethany. So as they're climbing the Mount of Olives, Peter and Andrew and James and John ask Jesus, when is all of this going to happen? And so He sits down with them on the, on the side of this mountain overlooking the city and his answer is the Olivet Discourse. What I've been trying to do this morning is recreate the context for this message that Jesus gives us. And then I'm hoping for us to, to read the discourse together and then to make some very important observations about our overall reading before we move into his teaching in greater detail next week. And so if you will, would you please turn with me to, to Mark chapter 13.
Now as we, as we read chapter 13 together, it may be comforting or helpful or reassuring to know that, uh, like I said, this is in all three of the synoptic gospels. So it may be reassuring to know that while that Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21 are all basically the same. Each one will introduce some new information, some new details will be introduced. But when we're reading Mark chapter 13, we are basically reading Matthew 24, and we are basically reading Luke 21. The only significant difference is that Matthew includes an additional chapter, chapter 25 of Matthew. Because at the end of this discourse, Jesus begins to teach in parables. And so Matthew and Mark and Luke all include the parable of the fig tree. But Matthew includes three additional parables. That's chapter 25. They are very important parables for understanding this discourse. But Matthew includes the uh, parable of the ten virgins. He includes the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheeps and the goats. So let's read the chapter together beginning in verse 1. As he was going out of the temple complex, I'll put that there. As he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple complex, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign all these things are about to take place? Then Jesus began by telling them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are beginnings of birth pains. Verse 9, But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to Sanhedrins, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you is in that hour. Say it. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Then brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and put them to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. Verse 14, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it should not, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in the winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of the world, which God created, until now and never will be again. 
Unless the Lord limited those days, no one would survive. But he did limit those days because of the elect whom he chose. Verse 21, Then if anyone tells you, Look, here is the Messiah. Look there. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the end of the sky. Verse 28. Learn this parable from the fig tree. As soon as this branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know the summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that He is near at the door. I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Well, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. So watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his slaves, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or at the crowning of the rooster, or early in the morning. Because if you don't watch out, otherwise he might come suddenly and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. I'd like to make three closing observations about this this morning. The first one is that this discourse is initiated by a question. And that is why we study the, the, the ending of Matthew chapter 23 because it explains to us why these guys ask this question. It gives us the context. They've been in Jerusalem. They've been in the temple complex. All of the things that we've been studying has been happening there on Tuesday and Wednesday. And now as they're leaving the city, after he's made this horrible pronouncement upon the nation, this is why they're asking this question. It's encouraging to know that when we ask God questions, He wants to tell us the answers. The second thing is that He is describing the destruction of Jerusalem and His return. Now, historically, we know that in A.D. 70, the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Romans. The temple, the city, all of the buildings, the nation was completely destroyed. There was a, a massacre of the population and most of the survivors were taken away into slavery. We know that happened in A.D. 70. And so as we read this passage here, there are some things that are described in the fall of Jerusalem that didn't happen. Some of it did, some of it didn't. And if you were alive in A.D. 72, A.D. 83, and you look back at the Olivet Discourse, you're thinking, some of those things didn't happen. 
There's one really big thing that didn't happen. Jesus didn't come back. And so Jesus is predicting the destruction of the city and His return. We know the city was destroyed, but Jesus was, did not return. And we know that the description of the destruction wasn't exactly the same. There's some things that did happen and some things that didn't. And so what we see happening here is God, Jesus is revealing to us that there is an interval of time that separates two events. We can see that in the future, Jerusalem is going to fall again. And when Jerusalem falls again, the rest of these things that are described are actually going to occur. And again, this is when we can expect to see Jesus returning. And so you and I are sitting in the middle of that interval of time. But in the future, this is going to happen. There's going to be another destruction of the city. There's going to be a return of Christ. The Son of Man is coming. And so Jesus says at the very end, He says, what I'm saying to you, I say to everyone else, be alert. Because you and I fall right in the middle of this interval. We're going to spend some time looking at that. And the final thing is we see that Jesus is describing this future period of time when Jerusalem falls. He is comparing it to a woman giving birth. And we know that, uh, that the labor pains intensify over time. And so he tells us that in the beginning of this period of time, the labor pains are not going to be as severe as they are going to be at the end. And he begins to describe what some of these labor pains are in the beginning. He tells us that there's going to be false messiahs, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, plagues, persecution. He says, but this is just the beginning. Don't think this is the end. This is just the beginning. But something is going to change. When you see the abomination of the desolation, when you see that in the temple, that's when you need to flee to the mountains. That's when Judea needs to flee. This begins the second half. This begins the hard labor. Jesus describes it here as the great tribulation. Is during this second period of time when the nation will go through Jacob's trouble, this anguish that will culminate with the birth of a child, with something new. This is when Jesus returns and establishes His kingdom.